Hey everybody, welcome to Answer the Call. I'm Kelsey Kemp. This is a podcast for Christians who want to find their calling and launch an incredible career that's aligned with it, taking up the torch with me to use every ounce of our ambition, our vision, and our gifts for the flourishing of God's creation. Every week, I'm bringing you a workshop-style training from my perspective as a Christian career coach and entrepreneur, as well as inspiring conversations with fellow Christ followers who are boldly living out their callings so you could be encouraged to live out yours with bold faith, big vision, and decisive action. Today's guest is Jordan Rayner, a serial entrepreneur and national best-selling author who helps Christians do their most exceptional work for the glory of God and the good of others. He does this through his books called To Create, Master of One, and as of today, his latest book, Redeeming Your Time. He also has an incredible podcast, The Call to Mastery, where you could hear his weekly conversations with world-class professionals who are also living out their calling for the glory of God and the good of others. In addition, he also does weekly devotionals, which you could sign up for at jordanrainer.com, all through which Jordan has helped more than 3 million Christians in every country on earth connect their work with the gospel. In this conversation, Jordan and I talk about the freedom God gives for us to choose our callings, Yep, you heard that right. (laughs) And the five reasons why Christians should set the most audacious goals on the planet, as well as the seven biblical principles for becoming purposeful, present, and wildly productive from his new book, Redeeming Your Time, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And ironically, as I was recording this intro, I got, I saw the Amazon delivery man walk up to my driveway and I just got the three beautiful hardback copies that I ordered because it was that good. One, because I wanted to proudly display it on my shelf right next to my desk and two, because I want to give these to friends continually all the time. Three books is just the start. So I am so excited for you to listen in on this conversation. By the way, for you longtime listeners who listened to my 100th episode special, you know that I mentioned Jordan as one of my top dream podcast guests. Can't believe the day is here. I'm so excited for you to listen in. So enjoy this epic conversation. And of course, as you feel that this is only a taste of all the goodness that's packed into redeeming your time, today is October 19th, 2021, when I'm releasing this, which is also the official launch day for redeeming your time, meaning you could get it in your hands right away through Audible, Amazon, or wherever you buy your books. Enjoy this conversation with Jordan Rayner. Jordan. You're here. The time has come. And redeeming your time is another thing that the That's time right. has come. The book launch, the week this is being released, it's it here. lines up with a big, big moment for the work that you've been putting in on this new work. So, or in this new book, a couple things just to say I Please. took from reading Redeeming Your Time. Yeah. One, some very rich theology that I had not mined the depths of before. Two, some practicals. I know that you're such a practical person that are tangibly life altering. The third is that you're a massive Taylor Swift fan. (laughs) I really am. I really am. It's a little unhealthy. 
unhealthy. Okay. I don't know that those three things have ever been uh, said about one person. Theological depth, Mm -hmm. love of Taylor, the greatest chief marketing officer of all time and uh, (laughs) practicality. So I love it. I'll I'll take it. You can put that on my tombstone now. Oh, I mean, I'm always looking for a good epitaph. Mine is kind of in a revolving state. I'm just working on it. Very curious. What is your favorite album? Ooh, man, such a good question. I think it's Lover. Mm, And I know that's not a popular answer with other Swifties, but I don't know. I just, (laughs) coming out of the dark days of reputation, I was was ready for Lover and I dig it. I mean, I'm sure that your answer will fluctuate at different points in life because, you know, she just has so much to appreciate. Um, so anyway, I, I mean, if you could tell my haircut is fairly, very inspired by the Taylor. Yes. So, uh, Clearly, 1989 respect. Look. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, trying to build a reputation. I think they say so, uh, gosh, gross. Ugh, can't tell if I love myself or I hate myself. So here's the deal. Your career is so fascinating to me from starting in politics and getting an internship at the White House and then becoming a serial entrepreneur and then going out and uh, building what is now Jordan Rainer and company and dedicating to this mission of helping every Christian do their most exceptional work for the glory of God and the good of others. So I love a good career story. I'm kind of curious about how you would describe that journey and how in the twists and turns, you ended up deciding that this was your one thing. Yeah. So a few different, I I think of my career story in terms of like pivots, right? Mm -hmm. So my first professional love was politics. As you mentioned, Uh, when I was in the eighth grade, it's going to sound crazy. I was a really cool eighth grader. I was certain I was going to run campaigns for the rest of my life. That's all I wanted to do. And I was pretty, I mean, I was pretty intense and serious about that. My first job, I was 17 years old. I ran a countywide campaign here in Tampa, Florida. And to my surprise, and I think the candidate surprise, we won, uh, which was <laughs> awesome. Is like, yeah, this is the thing. So I went to Florida State partially because I wanted to be in the capital of Florida where everything was happening politically. Went to the Bush White House, kind of saw the top echelon of that space. Yeah. And I, you know, I just became convinced that cultural change can happen at a much greater scale when it's created through business and through culture than it can be for the top down via legislation. And so I, I just got disenchanted with politics for a number of different reasons. That's one of them. So that was like kind of the first big pivot uh, away from politics and towards entrepreneurship. Um, and listen, I had a great 10 year run as a tech entrepreneur, I love entrepreneurship. I love the art of, you know, spotting a gap in a market, bringing a product to market that can serve people really well to kind of bridge that gap and then setting up systems to where it doesn't need your direct involvement over time. So I did that for 10 years, started and sold a couple of different companies. Uh, And then the next big pivot for me was away from the world of tech entrepreneurship to what I'm doing today, which I really view honestly as content Mm -hmm. entrepreneurship. I I think the art of bringing new books into the world, new podcasts into the world, whatever it is, is very similar to bringing a tech product into the world, right? Like you talk to customers, you understand what their pain points are, you bring products to market to solve their problems and you move on to the next thing. Um, But for me, 
you know, I, I viewed my 10 years, uh, looking back, I viewed those 10 years of work as a tech entrepreneur very much as ministry, right? Um, I think whatever work we do in this world is a means of ministry, is a means of service to others. Uh, but I just, you know, somewhere in my story, I heard this message uh, that all work can be ministry and it just changed my life. And so the work I'm doing today, I'm full-time dedicated to championing that message in as many ways as possible, helping Christians connect the gospel of Jesus Christ to what they do vocationally, uh, mostly outside the four walls of the church, uh, to why they work, why they do their work, why they find value and purpose in their work, and then to how they do their work. I mean, you, you already mentioned Redeeming Your Time. We're releasing this on the book birthday of Redeeming Your Time. It's all a book about how the gospel compels us to work differently, to manage our time differently and service not of ourselves, but of others and of God's great glory. So that's the very long-winded answer to your question oh, of my not many career pivots. I was captivated the whole time. And okay, in oh, I knew I was going to try to paste this question for later. I'm going to do a little, let's bookmark this. How about this? Yeah. Let's do in it. your career journey, full of pivots. I think that you exercise the attitude and the theology of I have freedom to choose. Yes. And I still very much am leading from a sense of calling. Yes. And calling seems to many to be exclusively audible and specific instructions or writing on the wall where yeah. there is no choice. There's a huge element of surprise. Oh, I, uh, especially the misconception that I speak with people a lot on of God is going to play the opposite game with me. And it's actually about denying even the things I'm good at, the things I have a natural suitability for, and especially enjoy. And instead, I think that you take such a brilliant biblical stance of stewarding your abilities and your desires and whatnot, um, instead of denying them or thinking that there's no sense of calling to be yeah. found in exploring those things. Yeah. I talked a lot about this in Master of One, my second mm -hmm. book, right? This idea that I think a lot of people, Christian and not, but especially Christians, treat calling the way that Hollywood treats romantic love. Mm -hmm. Right. As if there is this magical one Mr. Right in the world. And there's only one person I'm ever destined to be with. And we all know logically that's not true of romantic love. And yet we still act that it's uh, act like it's true of calling and career. You know, I think there are many different types of work that I could do that bring God glory. I don't think he has hidden this one secret in the world and my job is to unearth it. I think in his goodness, he has given all human beings one overarching mission, which is to bring him glory, right? To make his name known throughout the earth. And then in his grace, he's given us freedom to just choose a path, a career, a vocation that we can do in service of that broad mission, right? Like, I honestly don't think God cares very much what specific decision I choose, what specific career I choose to lean into, right? Because at the end of the day, 
regardless of what I choose, his purposes will not be thwarted, right? He's still going to accomplish his purposes in the world. He doesn't need me to pick a particular job in order for his purposes to prevail in the world, right? I think what he's honored in is the process by which we make those choices and the pursuit of excellence in our work as a means of serving others and glorifying him. But I don't think he really cares a lot about the details of what specific work we choose, so long as that work isn't explicitly violating his word and his commands. Yeah, what does Tell- uh, Keller call it? He says, uh, all everyday work, I think, is mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. that is God glorifying. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. That is a proposition that seems scandalous in opposition to a lot of the things that made me decide to start Answer the Call in my career coaching practice. And I'm sure that many might even still assume that I would disagree with what you said, because I talk about the concept of calling, but constantly trying to demystify and align with, yes, there is freedom of choice here. And I found so much freedom in what you highlighted there of God doesn't need us to complete his will. It says in Acts 17, like as if he is served by human hands, he created us. He doesn't need us. But I like what you highlight in chapter four of redeeming your time of we get to be a part of the blessing. There is blessing in it. So seek that ambitiously. Can you talk more about that? And then also what comes up when I say seek ambitiously, like the blessing that God is offering. I think a lot of people get concerned about, is that selfish? Can you speak to that too? Yeah. I mean, all throughout scripture, the Lord is incentivizing us with rewards, with blessings for, for work done well. I mean, the number of times Paul talks about eternal rewards attached to how we work in this life is staggering, right? We don't talk about this, uh, enough, right? Um, so what I mean about participating in the blessing, it's, I think the parable of the talents is the best picture of this. You know, God doesn't need us to choose any one job, but if we care about being a part of what he's doing in the world, we will make a choice. We will stop this kind of uh, decision paralysis over career and just pick a lane and go for it in freedom because God is up to work in this world and we want to be a part of that. Not because he needs us, right? Uh, But because we just want to be a part of the joy of partnering with him in restoring creation and being uh, repairers of creation. But we can't do that if we spend our life uh, analyzing what our calling is. At some point, we just got to make a choice and decide, yeah, this is The thing, I think a lot of people make the discernment of work, their life's work, right? Their life's work is figuring out what their life's work is going to be. That's crazy, right? We got to get off the sidelines and get engaged, just make choices and uh, start experimenting and finding the thing that's going to serve people well. Because at the end of the day, that's what Jesus has called us to, to good works for others that bring God glory. And all throughout scripture, when Jesus uses these words, good works, when the apostle Paul uses it in Ephesians 2, uh, a lot of times we hear that word good works, we're like, well, good works means giving to charity, 
or evangelism. And sure, it, 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 it connotes that idea, but according to every biblical concordance I've ever been able to find, that Greek word, ergozon, that, that we translate to good works, means work, task, and employment, right? Jesus has mm, called us say to Say it again. Work. Yeah. Yes. Jesus has called us to go to work and just do our jobs with excellence and love. And that brings him great glory. Yes. And I... <laughs> Oh man, I have been changed by that message as well. And I think that we're, we have a really complimentary mission that God has put on each of our hearts to say, look, the good works is not just within the walls of a church. It is very much going on in everything that you do, especially in the 90,000 hours you spend in quote, every day, quote, secular work. Oh, look at Jesus. Yes. Look at Jesus in his ministry. Jesus could have chosen anybody to partner with him in launching his kingdom on earth. He could have chose the religious professionals of his day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He chose tax collectors and fishermen. He himself was a carpenter, right? I don't know how much more clearly God can say that the work of building the kingdom belongs to everybody right? Religious professional and not. And I would argue if, if you're looking at the example of Jesus and who he called, it's even more heavily weighted towards the non-religious professionals. You and I are going to work every day out in the world, outside the four walls of the church. We are part of partnering with Jesus and gardening the final creation. Absolutely. And just to underscore um, one thing that I think used to concern me, or I might in earlier years of my life have heard what you're talking about and thought, oh, is Jordan just, you know, echoing what I've heard so many times of just pick and be wherever God has you in this very, and not being at cause kind of like a, I, I'm just, I happen to be here. I guess that my passive choice to choose this major as an 18 year old means that I've been assigned to this career for the rest of my life. And even though I hate it now, and there's clear signs that it's not very suitable, I guess I just have to scrape up and will myself into a sense of purpose that is very, very uh, difficult. Mm -hmm. And so all of our energy ends up going into striving for contentment instead of actually producing fruitfulness and the joy of, you know, God being the God of that parable and the parable of the talents of, Hey, good job. Now come and share in your master's happiness. And so you, I mean, from reading your books and especially master of one was so impactful for me. And I encourage, <laughs> encourage is a nice word. I have very forcefully made people read it. <laughs> um, I, it. I know from that book that you are not encouraging a lack of thoughtfulness in that point and shoot mentality and just suck it up and it's good work and it's purposeful. I, I love your ideology around making small bets yeah. and testing it out and being very thoughtful with experimentations until you're ready to go all in. So it's yeah, not an totally. all in right from the no. beginning when you still have some experimentation to do. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. In Master of One, I outlined this four-step path to mastery. Um, step one is experimentation. Step two is choose, right? 
choose something that you're going to master in this season of your career. Step three is eliminate. And then step four is really isn't a step. It's a lifelong process of mastery. But I think a lot of times we're asking people to choose their quote unquote one thing way too early. We're asking people to go straight to step two, when in reality, a lot of us need to spend, I don't know, our 20s in step Mm -hmm. one and just experimenting a ton. Because if we believe that the purpose of work is to serve others, which I think Jesus makes this pretty clear throughout his parables, throughout his teaching, then the only way we can know how we're going to best serve others is by trying a bunch of different things, right? By experimenting, by scattering a lot of seed, uh, to borrow the metaphor from Jesus's uh, own parable, right? So we got to scatter a lot of seed, but then once we find something that is starting to show signs of, of, exponential disproportionate results, we would be wise to ignore everything else, to choose that thing and to just pour more fuel on the fire, more water on those seeds, if you will, uh, to have it grow even more fruit in service of others. Absolutely. And you demonstrated this in your twenties of (laughs) seeing the faithfulness of objective observation in your career And seeing it as faithfulness, once a certain career path, you know, you talked about politics, first off, once you saw, I think that there are more effective ways that I want to dedicate my time, my life, my talents to, Uh, and then you just made a decision and you went for something new without making that hyper spiritual about, do I just need an attitude change? That's a big one. Do, is it unfaithful of me? because I'm having a bad attitude mm-hmm. and I, do I need to actually stay here longer? And I think that you have so much, I mean, I can't speak for you, but I'm assuming that a lot of fruitfulness has come in your career by knowing when to call it and then just doing something about it and making yeah. a pivot. And you talk about this in master of one of few decisions. I believe you did are also permanent. And you yeah, keep on evolving. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, very few decisions are irreversible. We just agonize over these decisions, honestly, a little too much. We need to be methodical. We need to be careful. We need to be experimenting and looking for the fruit. But man, we just, we just got to make a choice. I, hopefully this will make sense. I, I, I've never talked about this publicly, so this might not make sense at all, but we're going <laughs> to, we're going to try this out. I've been like really fascinated lately with what seems like an exponential rise in interest in superhero movies, right? Mm -hmm. Like the Marvel franchise, whatever. And it makes sense, right? Like we all want to be a, we love epic stories, right? We love watching the epic, the truly heroic, the world is going to end and we got to have a hero to save the day. But as Christians, man, we got to get off of the couch Stop consuming the story and see ourselves as actors in the story. We have been drafted into the greatest story of all time, the building for God's eternal kingdom. We already are part of that epic story. We just don't recognize it, right? And so we sit back and we consume and we think the epic is out there. It's it's in Hollywood. It's fantasy. No, the truly epic story is real. God's called you to be a part of it. 
get off the couch and be a part of the story. Be a part of restoring creation to its final eternal state, the kingdom of God. Oh my goodness. I'm so glad. Since you brought up a, you tested out a new little quip. I will also test out a new little quip. (laughs) So I recently heard an interview. It was actually from a long time ago from Malcolm Gladwell, which I really hope you have him on your podcast. (laughs) We haven't invited him yet, but he's top on my list to invite. I'd love to have. Oh my goodness. Well, uh, so um, he talked about in this interview and I'll just give the summarizing point of what I took from it. I think one thing that absolutely cripples the West is that we have big stories in our mentality about that's inherently available to me. Like I'm inherently good at it or I'm inherently lucky or I'm not, I'm an insider or I'm an outsider. That's them. And and that's, you know, good for them. He lives a great story. She lives a great story, but I don't. And versus our counterparts in non-Western societies, particularly he was demonstrating this through a global um, uh, STEM test that like uh, sciences, math, engineering, whatever, um, that goes around in the globe every couple of years to assess uh, competencies against different cultures. And Western counterparts did very poorly in math compared to Asian youth. And it was not the, the single factor that made a difference was that the uh, Asian mindset um, and, you know, that's Northeast, South, Central Asian. Mm-hmm. Um, the mindset, when they look at a math problem, they think with effort, I can participate and I could solve this. Mm-hmm. It's a math problem. It has an mm-hmm. answer. There's a yeah, process. Western counterparts say, I, I think that this requires, this is a hard looking math problem and I'm not good at that. Like a good portion of the population will think that they have an inherent inability and that's just not true. And so I think there's this choice of like you're saying, choose the story is available to you. This is something that God designed. Very first commandment that you see, oh, getting so fired up, uh, is to rule and subdue the earth as image bearers. And you could choose to be a part of that or you cannot, but it's available to everyone. And so, yes, we're bringing that up. No, I I love it. And part of this is just the church's misunderstanding of, um, we understand, okay, Genesis 1, Adam and Eve were called the garden, uh, called to rule the earth, called to fill the earth and subdue it. But we think, well, now we're living post-sin and we're living post-Jesus' resurrection. And we're all just kind of sitting around, like waiting for him to come back. You know, there's a passage I go to a lot in John chapter 20, uh, John's account of the resurrection of Jesus. There's this little tiny detail that we always gloss over that I think we need to really focus in on. It says, um, says that when Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene after the resurrection, Mary mistook him for a gardener. Gloss over it, move on to the next verse, whatever. Uh, I was talking with N.T. Wright, who Newsweek is called the world's leading New Testament scholar about this. And N.T. Wright's like, Jordan, this is 100% intentional, what John is doing. He's pointing, Jesus is pointing us back to the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve's first call to garden the earth, cultivate the earth. Now, sin messed everything up, made work hard, right? And that's why Jesus had to come, right? So Jesus comes. And at the resurrection, 
he inaugurates the final creation. Jesus is the last Adam inaugurating the final creation, the eternal kingdom of God. And he appears, chooses to appear to be mistaken for a gardener, to remind us that there's still work to do, that it's time to garden again. Jesus could have brought the kingdom in full on that first Easter Sunday, but he didn't, right? Because just as the first Adam had his bride Eve to cultivate the first creation, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, has his bride, the church, to help him cultivate the final one, right? It was mind-boggling. I mean, that's it. This is the key that unlocks everything. And now it makes sense why Jesus says in Acts 1, the disciples say, hey, you're going to bring the kingdom in full now, right? And he says, no, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The kingdom's going to come slowly. It's going to come like a mustard seed. It's going to come like yeast working its way through 60 pounds of dough. It comes, at least in part, through you and I partnering with Jesus the gardener to garden to the final creation. Okay, well, um, so I'm stunned and uh, quite literally, I think magically experiencing mind blownness. I think. <laughs> so um, thank you for that profound point, but also, ouch, I don't know how I'm supposed to continue with this interview, but I'll try. So this is my best effort. I think that what you said fires me up in ambition to, yes, as we've been speaking about, choose my one thing and go after it hard. Yeah. Part of that is obviously, I'd love to transition into redeeming yeah. your time. Yeah. You, why? I think we see some natural implications. Okay. Yeah. That's important. But there's so many time management books out there. Oh my gosh. What made you want to take on this topic and what's different about redeeming your time? Yeah. This is the most cluttered category of books in the world. In the world. 60,000 time management books on Amazon. I've read all the perennial sellers in this category. And honestly, that's why I wrote this book. Because I was tired of reading this book and seeing these two massive problems with the books in this category. Number one, almost every time management book I've ever read is based on what I would call works-based productivity. Right. The message is, hey, you're feeling overwhelmed. You're feeling stressed. You're feeling swamped. Uh, follow the author's system. Do exercises X, Y, and Z. And then you will find peace. Right. As Christians, we could start with the opposite premise and what I call grace-based productivity in the book, which says that through Jesus Christ, I already have peace. Paul says this in Romans 5.1, we have peace with God, ultimate peace. I don't do time management exercises to get peace. I do them as a worshipful response to the peace I've already been given. So to, in my opinion, that's just a radically different foundation to build a book on. And I wanted it to is. see that book in the world. Here's the second problem. And you, you know this because you've read the book, uh, but I have never read a time management book that accounted for how the author of time managed his time when he came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm. This is certifiably insane. Christian <laughs> or not, very hard to dispute that Jesus was the most productive person to ever walk the earth. And you might not think the gospels have a lot to say about how he manages time, but they do. We just have to read the gospels for what they are, biographies of the yes. life of Christ. You know, they, they don't show Jesus with a to-do list or a calendar 
But the gospels do show him being distracted at work, right? Fighting for solitude, trying to be busy without being hurried. In other words, they showed Jesus struggling with a lot of the same things you and I struggle with. So that's why I wrote this book, Redeeming Your Time are these seven timeless time management principles from the life of Christ mapped to more than 30 hyper-practical practices that help us walk like Jesus walked in the 21st century. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I think it would have been so inspiring all the same if you went with what you were talking about the majority of that time, which is, listen, we need to have a a theology in an idea a rooted identity that's in grace before we move, not something that we earn after we do the right things. And so I would have expected, yeah, you could write an, like a theological commentary on time management. Nope. In Jordan Rayner style, you map that succinctly, powerfully. And like I said, in life altering practices that are so practical, you could Crazy practical. walk <laughs> through this book one chapter at a time as you designed it there's no like get to chapter three and then I'm going to lump in a bunch of homework for you and then we're just going to do some backing up statements to make sure that you really are convinced that this is going to work no every single chapter principle practices principle practices and I I just think it it is kind of an audacious thing to set out to do and I would say you absolutely did it this is a time management book to kind of end them all. <laughs> and- yeah. Well, you're kind. I mean, listen, like uh, another problem with that I've had with these books in these categories, they're either too theoretical. Mm-hmm. They tell you what to do, but they don't tell you how to do it. So they're just all theory uh, or they're all tactical and they're so dry that you just like can't get through it or they're missing the theological piece. And yeah, I, you know, I had a wildly, wildly ambitious vision for this project. When I told my publisher uh, uh, the pitch for this, they were like, that sounds unique, truly. Like in the truest sense of that word, uh, good luck figuring this out. Like I, we're just like, I don't know that you can pull it off. And I think we pulled it off. I mean, you know, I tell people, people have been like, oh, why should I get the book? I'm like, don't believe me. Like I'm biased. Just go read the Goodreads reviews. Like, I don't know, like just go listen to what people are saying about this thing. It's helping people. Uh, And listen, this isn't me. Uh, This is God's word. I really believe these are biblical principles for being purposeful, present and productive. Uh, God just used me to deliver this message. Oh gosh. I I mean, I, um, I wish that we could have a weekly segment to talk about so many different things that are sprouting up in my mind, but how about this? Let's go ahead and dive into what are these seven biblical principles yeah. that I love the subtitle for this book, which is seven biblical principles for being purposeful, present, and wildly productive. Yeah. So I'll sketch them out those. real fast. Yeah. All right. Principle number one, start with the word. Jesus prioritized time with his father above sleep, above food, above time with his disciples. And if Jesus needed that, being 100% God and 100% man, yeah, we need it too. And I argue in the book that this is the keystone habit for time management that makes everything else more effective and easy. Uh, Principle number two, let your yes be yes. You know, a lot of time management talks about setting big goals and whatever. We just got to make sure that what we're already committed to is well organized. And in the, as you know, Kelsey, in this chapter of the book, I help readers build this commitment tracking system 
to ensure that more times than not, our yes is yes. Uh, principle number three, descent from the kingdom of noise. Jesus spent a phenomenal amount of time in lonely places. Sometimes the gospels translate that to solitary places. And we got to do the same. If we want to think clearly, if we want to be creative, if we want to listen to God's voice, we have got to learn how to model his ability to dissent from the kingdom of noise. Principle four, prioritize your yeses. Pretty self-explanatory. Jesus didn't say yes to everything, neither can we. Principle five, accept your uni presence. Um, it's pretty wild to think about the fact that omnipresent God for 33 years in the person of Jesus Christ became uni-present. He was confined to one place at a time. And you see Jesus fighting distractions all throughout the gospels. And yet he was able to embrace his uni-presence and be fully focused on one important person or thing at a time. We got to do the same. Principle six, embrace productive rest which sounds like an oxymoron. I promise it's not. And then finally, principle number seven, eliminate all hurry. Um, we should embrace busyness, right? Mm. But never in a way to where it makes us frantic or anxious or angry and unable to look other people in the eye as we're going throughout our busy days. And I think that's the line between busy and hurry. Mm-hmm. And we got to make sure people- we stay on the right side. would not say you just said we can embrace and it can be good to embrace busyness but separating that from hurry most people would not not ever say that but look yeah you (laughs) you're not leaving us without instructions on how we could have a full life not for the sake of fullness or just gaining more glory for ourselves or again because god needs our service or we need to burn bright in this one life so we make sure that humanity gets ahead you model having big audacious goals for the joy and the worship of it Wait, I think I cut you off for principle seven though. Let's go into that before no, I did. ask you more questions. Oh, I did. No, you did. It's oh, good. All right. no, you're well, good. You're good. No, that's, so, no, this is great. I like where you're going with this. Okay. I We need to talk a little bit about the big audacious goals or the yeah. big hairy audacious goals as yeah. you follow them. You in chapter five, I, mm, chapter five, chapter four, I think, uh, talk about the five reasons that Christians should set more epic goals. Yeah. Favorite, favorite part. Yeah. Can you please yeah. talk really? about Really? Wow. Okay, yeah. good. This is good to know. This is interesting. Yeah. You know, I just look around the world, and this goes back to our superhero conversation for a minute ago. I just look around the world, and Christians just set really lame goals or yes. average-sized goals that look like the rest of the world's. And I just think that's tragic, right? There, I think there are at least five reasons why we should be taking the biggest swings on earth. You know, number one, scripture tells us that God is has the power to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine that comes from Ephesians 3 20. Yeah. I just don't think we believe that honestly, (laughs) like I, if we did, we'd be taking far, far bigger swings. You know, I talk about William Wilberforce in the book. Wilberforce believed this to be true. He dedicated his life to the big, hairy, audacious goal of abolishing the slave trade throughout the British empire. And by God's grace, he did it, right? So that's the first reason why we need to set bigger goals. Number two, in my experience, 
big goals are actually easier to achieve than small goals. Everybody sets average size goals. Everybody sets small goals. So paradoxically, the competition, the level of competition for your goal decreases often as the size of your goal increases, which is kind of this weird paradox of the yes. universe. Uh, you know, number three, big goals in my experience make it easier to say no. A lot of times when I'm talking to somebody, they're like, oh, I just can't stop saying no to requests for my time. It's usually because they're not inspired by the goals that they've set in front of their lives and in front of their work. If you give your life to something that really fires you up, a big, hairy, audacious, long-term goal, it's a heck of a lot easier to say no. Number four, big goals recruit others to your cause and to your work. And then number five, as Christ followers, we know that regardless of the outcome of our goals, of our striving towards our goals, we cannot fail entirely. It's impossible because at the end of the day, we still have Christ. Right, We are secure in the Father's love, perfect, unconditional love, regardless of how much progress we make towards our goals. That should enable us to risk boldly uh, for the advancement of his kingdom. Oh, yes. Okay. That fired me up so much, especially the example that you gave. And as a career coach, I thought, I've just been talking about this nonstop, the example that you gave about Uh, I believe you were in college and your peers were looking for internships locally and there was so much competition. It was so hard to get a local internship. And you're like, Hmm, I'm going to apply for the white house. Yeah. Yeah. And I talked about this in the book. When I got to the white house, it's the white house, right? There's a hundred interns, a very exclusive class. I thought, man, these people are going to be so much more impressive, so much smarter than my uh, fellow public relations students at Florida State. Yeah, they weren't. Not at all, right? Like, in fact, a lot of my friends at Florida State were smarter than the other White House interns I worked with. The difference was audacity, right? The the delta was the people who went to the White House believed they could get in the White House. It just took a bigger swing, right? Uh, So I, I don't know. I just think it's an interesting thing for us to think about that, you know, again, the competition for goals is less at the top. It's easier to get an, uh, an internship at the White House sometimes than it is a local PR agency. It's easier to raise $10 million in venture capital than it is to raise $100,000, right? Not always, but yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah. Wow. What you just said in there, again, something else to underscore, you said that the difference was audacity and that your peers at the white house, they just believed they could, whether or not it was factual that they were just measurably better than everyone else. And it reminds me to how we started this conversation about why you wrote redeeming your time, having an approach that is centered in your identity of being covered in grace before you move from a place of that identity. And it reminds me of something I'm learning uh, in like professional development and other layers of coaching is that people often operate from an assumption that I need to uh, become or do different things. So, sorry. So, uh, hmm. I think I'm going to fumble on this one. It was very, no, I know when I read it this morning, like instead of operating from identity and letting that 
uh, naturally influence what you do and then what you have. We say, I need to uh, have certain qualities so that I could do certain things and then hopefully I could become. Yeah. And that almost just never happens. No. <laughs> Instead, we need to study like who we are in Christ. And so thank you yes. for putting that into this book. Yes. Too. I mean, that, that is the foundation of this book because I think it's the thing that makes us wildly ambitious mm-hmm. and audacious. I, I, I tell a story in the book that I think illustrates this well. Um, I got three young girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're seven, five, and almost two. And every single night without fail, before I put them in bed, last thing I tell them, I say, hey, girls, you know, daddy loves you no matter how many bad things you do. I said, yeah. I was like, you know, I also love you no matter how many good things you do. And they say, yeah. I was like, who else loves you like that? And they say, Jesus. We've got to hear those same words spoken over our work and our ability to be productive. If you can believe that the God of the universe died for you when you were his enemy, (laughs) certainly we can believe that he loves us regardless of how productive or unproductive we are, regardless of how many bad things or good things that we do or will do in this life. And so that is how the gospel enables us to rest. But it's also the resource that leads us to be, to want to be wildly ambitious for our work and for redeeming our time. Because working for somebody's favor, working to earn somebody's favor, that's exhausting. It's the most exhausting thing you could do. But working in response to unconditional favor that has been gifted to us that's intoxicating. You want to work hard for that person, not because you need their favor, right? But because you just want to bring them joy. You just want to bring them joy. That's how the gospel is this double-edged sword of ambition and rest. Okay, Jordan, that, that is so profound. One final, two last things that I really would love to touch on is your methodologies on how to embrace no and how to say it graciously and how our approach should be different than the world yet not negate the no that Jesus very much demonstrated in, in his ministry. And then also talking about uh, what you say in the epilogue about redeeming our time and being very cautious of the dark side of discipline. But first, yeah, the, the no, so yeah. profound. Help I me. hate, yeah. I, I just, I got to give credit to my editor on this one. She came to me early in this book. She's like, hey, we're writing a book of time management. Obviously, we got to say something about the word no and protecting our time. But she's like, I would just really encourage you to think deeply about how Christians ought to approach this topic differently because, as she and I were talking, secular conventional business wisdom here is garbage right? Uh, the advice, if I could summarize it is, you know, unless you could say hell yeah to something, say no. It's like, really? Like yeah. that is just out of step with Jesus's sacrificial example. Yes. There were times in which Jesus said no to request first time, but there were also a lot of times when he said yes, when he clearly didn't want to. Right. And so it's not black and white. Like as Christ followers, we need to be diligent in seeking out wisdom as to when to say no, when to say yes. But it can't be as simple as, man, it, it, unless this is aligned with your goals, you say no. Like that's, I, 
I just don't think that's a Christ-like approach to this word. So in the book, you know, what I what I try to offer as a, as a help are some questions that I love to ask when discerning when to say no. Um, you know, I'll just share a couple of them. There's eight questions in the book. I'll just share a couple of them right now. One question I've been asking a lot when I'm trying to say yes or no to request my time is, um, am I trying to do good or make myself look good with this request for my time? Because a lot of times, yeah, it's the latter. Like I, Mm -hmm. I, I'm not saying yes or considering saying yes, because I think I can actually serve the person. Well, I'm serving my own ego and the preservation of my reputation. And it's lame. That's not what we're called to. We're called to do good works for others, right? Um, I'll give you one more question I love to ask here. You know, this is a great opportunity for what? Like a lot of us say we, you know, we get invited to speak at a conference or to go have coffee with somebody or to meet somebody who's in town, whatever. Like, oh, this is such a great opportunity. For what? Like, it has to be attached to some of your goals and your vision for your work. Otherwise, it's just something that's stirring up frenetic excitement in you. That's not an opportunity, right? <laughs> so those are a couple of questions. Those are two of the eight questions um, that I like to ask when helping me discern yes or no. So Kelsey, you want to talk about the dark side of discipline? Oh, you bet. Yeah. Okay. So okay. I think you wrapped up this book so brilliantly because when you, okay, you're a highly disciplined person. And I yep. appreciate that you speak quite honestly about this, that when you are exceptionally vigilant with your time and others are not, or there's two sides to this, yep. you fail your own expectations. Yep. How yep. do you handle that? Yeah. Here's the deal. Discipline is a gift from God, right? It's a good thing. Jesus was disciplined right? Jesus was disciplined with this time. The apostle Paul all throughout his letters talks about how disciplined he was, but as with any good thing, we can very easily in our sinful nature, turn discipline into an ultimate thing and thus turn it into an idol. Right. And for me, I'm always trying to be aware of these two signs that I've crossed over to the dark side of discipline, which you just touched on Kelsey, you know, number one, is when I'm unable to extend grace to others who are less disciplined than I am, right? So if somebody, you know, shows up late to a meeting or drops a ball on a project, on my worst days, I'll never say it externally, I'll never say it verbally, but like internally, I can find myself seething with just this, honestly, just self-righteous anger yeah, that's trying never, to cover up the I fact. I would never. <laughs> I would never do that, but, but I know I have done that. Right. And when I, when I see that happening, I know I've got to go preach the gospel to myself and remind myself that every good thing I've been given, including my ability to be disciplined with my time is a gracious gift from the Lord. I didn't do anything right over the years. God has brought books into my life, software systems, people to help me get really good at redeeming my time. And thus I can have grace with others who have yet to be blessed with those tools, right? The second way I know I've crossed over the dark side of discipline is when I'm unable to extend grace to myself, right? When I don't finish everything on my to-do list for the week, or, you know, I fail to get my coveted eight hours of sleep because I was up with our baby in the middle of the night, right? Like I can be very hard on myself. And again, solution to the gospel, reminding myself that God doesn't need me to finish my to-do list. He loves me. He accepts me. I am his child. 
no matter how many good things I do, no matter how many bad things I do, right? Yeah. Uh, and that, it's the way I start the book. It's the way I end the book because I think an understanding of those truths and how the gospel influences our, our, our attempts to be productive, wildly productive, is essential. That theology is everything. That is the bedrock for how we can be purposeful, present, and productive in a peaceful, God-honoring way. Mm, amen. I would be remiss to not end this conversation with a question. I think you're the master interviewer here. I love listening to your podcast, The Call to Mastery. One of my favorite questions is your wrap up. So what is one thing from our conversation that you would like to underscore or reiterate for the listeners? There's a lot. I won't reiterate what I just reiterated. (laughs) Uh, Otherwise that would have been it. That would have been a really solid one. I'll I'll, I'll just go back to Jesus as the garden. I want to leave you Mm -hmm. with that picture. Jesus had every ability to bring heaven fully to earth at the resurrection. He didn't. Why? Because he has graciously invited us to garden with him, right? To use our work, to use our time, to use our talents, to cultivate the final creation, his kingdom. That's why we should care about redeeming our time, because that's what all of our work can be about when done in alignment with God's purposes for the world. Mm. Amen to that. And I also want to thank you genuinely for all the work that you've done uh, from Call to Create to Master of One to now Redeeming Your Time. I have found each of these books to be theologically and practically life-altering. And it's also modeled for me what I believe good Christian work should be, which is those two things, biblical and practically meaningful. Uh, So thank you for this work. And I want to also underscore that I say this with all sincerity, not one paragraph of redeeming your time was in any way, like just a rote uh, exercise in time management that you would expect from the other, what did you say? 60,000 books that have been written on this topic. (laughs) This is a work that it was clearly uh, in partner, done in partnership mm-hmm. and from the Lord. And so one that I fully encourage the listeners to have in hardback and one that they are going to want to have on their bookshelf with the others. So thank you for this and for our conversation today, Jordan. Thank you, Kelsey. I'm so grateful for your work. Keep it up. Trust me, there was not a single fiber in my being that wanted to end that Zoom meeting. What a great conversation with Jordan Rayner. I'm so grateful uh, for his wisdom that he shared in this episode. And if you enjoyed this episode right along with me, make sure that you're subscribed to Answer the Call so you never miss an episode in the future. And as you do that right now, take 30 seconds to leave a review below. That's how we get incredible guests like Jordan on the show. And Thank you so much for listening. I love making this show for you. And by the way, in the meantime, you could go connect with me on Instagram at Kelsey underscore the called career or go to KelseyKemp.com slash free for my set of free career tools that I designed for you. I will see you next week. Bye.